0: disinformation and influence operations, it's not a political issue. It's a national security issue that's manifesting itself in politics. This feels like the next iteration of warfare. We're all targets of disinformation, every single one of us.
1: Welcome to The Convergence, an Army Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanispert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within Army Futures Command and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Lisa Kaplan, Lisa founded the Aletheia Group to help organizations navigate the new digital reality and protect themselves against disinformation. Lisa will be talking with us today about weaponized information as a national security problem, algorithmic silos created by social media, and disinformation as the next iteration of warfare. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Okay, welcome to The Convergence. We are joined by Lisa Kaplan today. Lisa, thanks for coming on the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: So you have a wide range of experience from working on a Senate campaign to managing security forums to working in national laboratories. And now you founded the Aletheia Group. How did you get here and what made you start Aletheia
0: Group? It has been a wild ride, that's for sure. So I started Aletheia Group in May of 2019. And the reason I started it was because of my experience as the digital director on a 2018 um, Senate campaign. And what was interesting was this was, you have to remember, like put it into context. I know we've been talking about these issues almost some days it feels like ad nauseum since um, the 2016 election. But in 2018, this was the first campaigns since we really knew what was happening. And so in February of 2018, Robert Mueller's indictment of the Russians who interfered in the US election came out and it was written in very plain language. It clearly was not, you know, I don't think anybody was holding their breath waiting for the Kremlin to extradite these guys, but it laid out the playbook of what happened in 2016. And so we read that and we said to ourselves, okay, how are we going to know if this is happening? And once we figure it out, what are we actually going to do about it? And so we developed a strategy to be able to do things like proactively go out and look for instances of disinformation and create a resilient digital strategy so that we were able to spot any nefarious behavior Quicker, And so that we were able to um, really build a strategy that was more resilient to being co-opted. And then from there, you know, what we saw really, I think, just kept all of us up at night. We came to realize pretty quickly that disinformation and influence operations, it's not a political issue. It's a national security issue that's manifesting itself in politics. And so because of that experience, after the campaign, took some time um, and decided to go out and start Aletheia Group because... I didn't want to sit on the sidelines when, you know, our team had something that we could offer in order to help fight this fight. And I think it's important, too, to note that these fights are being fought out in the open. You know, all the everything that we do, we use open source information and open source data to be able to conduct our analyses, to be able to develop strategies that are going to work for organizations. And so that's the genesis of Aletheia Group. And I feel fortunate to uh, be able to work with such talented folks who have a broad, range of experiences as well. Everyone from former government employees to um, former campaign staff. So it's it's and ex- data sa- scientist. And so it's coming together as a really interdisciplinary group that's trying to do our part to solve this big challenge.
1: So you mentioned uh, your past working on the Senate campaign. How did some of your other past experiences help you think about disinformation now that you're with Alethea?
0: I think my past experiences were able to help shape help me shape this challenge as a very tactical issue where it's more person versus person. So from my experience in consulting with government to working on the Hill, we were able to really take a look at this as a national security issue, um, just from having worked on the policy side and the communication side of things. I think also being able to get tactical and be goal oriented was really critical. Um, You know, I've always been fortunate to work in organizations where we've been mission driven and part of a team, and we're all working to accomplish a goal together. And so to having that perspective and having that background was able to look at disinformation and influence operations as a potential threat to achieving our goals. And looking at it in that sense, so, you know, well, let's use the case of elections, for example, and looking at it at that sense, if you're on a campaign, if you are, then your goal is to win on election day, it's to beat the other candidates. And so in order to influence, if you're a bad guy, in order to influence that outcome, you're really targeting two decision points. So the first is whether or not somebody's going to show up to vote. Are they going to actually cast their ballot? So that's one um, decision point that you could potentially target. And it's a decision point that campaigns, frankly, are trying to target too, but they're trying to get people to show up to vote to exercise that right. And so that's the first decision point. The second is which candidate an individual would cast their ballot for. And so for us, and there's been all kinds of research out there, um, you know, questioning whether or not these influence campaigns are actually that effective. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, in my view of course they're effective otherwise why would we have 70 countries engaging in this interest groups engaging in this but the question i think of whether or not somebody's going to show up and cast their ballot for a different candidate is something that's still being debated i do think that it is entirely possible that somebody is influenced by a well-executed and thought-out operation our goal is to come in and be able to detect what's happening really figure out on a tactical level, where are the social media assets, where are the different components of these influence operations, whether they're foreign or domestic. For us, it doesn't really matter. It's about protecting that goal. And being able to identify that and then figure out what to do next in order to play that game of digital chess so that you as a team, you as an organization are still able to achieve your goal, no matter who's coming in and trying to attack whatever decision points are critical to your campaign, your business, or your organization.
1: So you've been studying this for a while now. Um, So through all your research into disinformation, what would you say has surprised you the most?
0: So I think, and not to get too wonky and nerdy about it, but I think the part that I found the most interesting is just the proliferation of this technology and how easy it is to do. Um, When we think about, and I'm not gonna sit here and tell you guys and your audience the history of warfare, but when we think about the fact that governments have always had a monopoly on the mechanisms needed to conduct war and then you know obviously we have had an emergence of terrorism and this feels like the next iteration of warfare in the sense that these tactics to cause chaos these tactics to sow discord they're they're more diffuse and anybody who is able to access the technology which isn't really that expensive or that sophisticated And anybody who's able to uh, or, or knows how to game these social media algorithms can do it. So I think that really surprised me, just the proliferation and the possibilities of bad actors getting in the game. And then the other thing that surprised me, I would say, is how these algorithmic silos work. When you think about the social media landscape, and I'm assuming that um, most people at this point are on social media, just statistically, I know um, a lot of folks stay off of it for operational security reasons, but typically people at least have Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever it may be. Um, Younger folks often have Snapchat. Don't get me started on TikTok, but it's one of the ones that's out there. and so. What's surprising is how we all live in our own algorithmic silos. And what I mean by that is we are, these these social media platforms, they are designed to keep us on the platform because the way that they're able to monetize the platform is by showing us advertisements. And there's not anything necessarily malicious about advertisements. You know, it's definitely up to the person who's creating that advertisement to make sure that everything is ethical and in line. Um, and we can talk more about that as well. But what surprises me is that we, so in order to show us these advertisements, the social media platforms are collecting tons and tons of data on us. And so because of that, they're able to show us the advertisements and the content that they think we want to see so that we stay on the platform. So everything that we're doing on social media is training the social media platforms what to show us, whether that's through our news feeds, whether that's through, you know, going and searching for something within the platform. And so it's these algorithmic styles that really create our own realities. So if you're only shown information from Fox News, for example, you may have a totally different An idea of what's happening versus somebody who's only shown information from MSNBC. Um, Typically, you know, those silos don't really overlap, and just the vast amount of data and what that tactically means in terms of the information we're shown. And then, you know, the flip side of that is the ability for a bad actor to potentially, without even using advertising or micro-targeting, be able to start slipping in disinformation or slipping in bad content or malinformation into our news feeds and helping to create and shape the realities that we're all living in.
1: I think that's really interesting because we talk a lot on this podcast about the first part of your answer, um, the, the democratization and the convergence of technologies um, and how you say everyone now has access to this type. Um, but I think the second part of your answer we don't hit on a lot is we think of when we go on the Internet, We're going on the open Internet, and really we're seeing a very filtered, myopic view of the Internet based on what Google or Facebook is sending back to us based on our tastes. So we have a very wide range of listenership on this podcast, uh, military, academics, students, civilians. Why do you think they need to be aware of disinformation campaigns, and what do they need to know?
0: We're all targets of disinformation, every single one of us. So, I think this is also where um, it's important to draw a distinction around disinformation from, say, for example, counterterrorism. These wars are literally being fought in the open. You have foreign governments, um, interest groups, they're all fighting for your eyeballs and they're trying to make you believe things that may not be true or show you content that is true, but it furthers their goal. And so because of that, this game of mass manipulation um, and all of us being targets, it sounds really overwhelming, but it also means that we can all fight back. I also think it means that we're all susceptible and that we need to acknowledge that because disinformation, it targets our biases, it targets our emotions. We're all human beings. You know, even I find myself sometimes susceptible where I'm stopping and saying, wait a second, that can't be right. Because we're all targets and because we can all fight back, there are certain things that you can do just in your day to day, regardless of your job, that will help protect yourself and your communities. So everything from thinking before you share. These bad actors are relying on you to share this information with your networks because you're a trusted voice to the people that are in your networks. Reading skeptically to know whether or not something is true. So approaching your social media feeds, you know, even if you're just passively scrolling through, waiting, killing time and seeing what's out there. What you can do is you can stop and you can look and you can say, okay, who is the author? Is this somebody who I know and trust? Is this a reputable source for somebody who should be, who could be talking about this issue? So for example, it's not always, you know, just enough to have the blue check mark on Twitter. The constitutional law scholars should not be giving you medical advice during coronavirus. So Thinking about where you're getting your information in a way that's not just, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, but it's actually saying, is this the right person who's qualified to give this information to me as a consumer that I then might make a decision about? anything that's sensational. So anything that it's clearly trying to elicit an emotion, um, whether it's anger, whether it's fear, those are strong emotions that will get you to likely engage with content. Typically, they're negative emotions. That's just how we're wired. Um, So being cognizant of that as well, I think is really important. And then finally, I think being careful about what you're putting out on the internet so that you aren't inadvertently spreading misinformation or disinformation. I always joke, you know, looking back on the long decade that is 2020, if the same person was giving you advice and providing insight into what was happening with Iran in early January, um, and now they're telling you how to protect yourself from coronavirus with the authority of an epidemiologist or like, it's just you need to be careful about what it is that you're saying and you're putting out there because you might inadvertently be using your position of trust to further somebody else's goal.
2: I think that's a great point in terms of uh, we don't often think about the personal responsibility aspect of it um, and not not just shadowy uh, corporations or even foreign governments. So, you know, thinking about this on, the, on this podcast, we talk a lot about disruptive technologies like artificial intelligence, uh, related deep fakes and things like that. What do you think the future of disinformation looks like?
0: It's a great question. I'm going to start with the, you know, scary parts of it and then end with the parts that give me hope because at the end of the day, I'm still doing this every day. So I obviously think that we can get out of this mess. The scary part is it's getting these algorithmic silos that we've talked about, they're getting stronger and stronger. You know, I think it's that much people can probably realize anecdotally, but we are getting pushed further and further apart. And there have been several academic studies on this that show the overlay between the frequency of clicks and people's registered political parties. And so we're all creating our own algorithmic silo echo chambers. And I think that that's going to get worse. And I think it's going to make it harder for us to operate from the same set of facts. So I think that that's one component. And I think it gets back to that leads into the next component, which is it's getting harder and harder for people to trust the information that they're seeing. That's a reality. And so the question becomes, if there's this information overload and we're getting all of this conflicting information, who do we trust? How do we know it's reputable? What happens when we often talk about journalism as the way out of um, this? And I do think that journalism is incredibly important. Anything that's had an editorial review deserves more trust than just like, a random tweet on the internet from an account you've never seen before. However, what happens when we don't trust the media? What happens when we only trust certain media sources? How are we able to then operate from the same set of facts if not everybody is covering the same events or, you know, if the only common factor is, you know, the United States is a country, and that's like what's the common fact across a bunch of articles that doesn't really tell you much about news of the day. So that is what is concerning me. Um, I think also we need to look at um, the proliferation of different social media channels. So it's not just the mainstream Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram. It's also Gab. It's Poor Chan. It's 8kun, which is the new Eight Chan. Um, it's all of these fringe sources that are creating, you know, even crazier, more conspiratorial fringe sites that are contributing to the proliferation of disinformation in these algorithmic silos and the lack of trust. Here's the bright side, though. When we think about our consciousness as a public, this conversation that we're having right now it would not have happened 10 years ago. It's not to say that influence operations, psyops, that that didn't exist, it is to say that it wasn't as much in the public consciousness. So we're talking about deep fakes, we're talking about how AI can potentially impact our democratic processes, our economic processes and all these technological developments and what they could potentially mean before we've actually seen them in action. So let's say the first deepfake gets released and used as part of a broader disinformation or influence campaign in the 2020 elections. We can say this is a deepfake and we don't have to explain what a deepfake is the way we had to explain what a bot network or a sock puppet was after the 2016 elections. So in that sense, these conversations are super important. And the fact that we're having them gives me hope because without these conversations, we can't make meaningful structural change that we need to make.
2: That kind of segues a little bit into what are some best practices for the Army? How do we get us into national defense and active defense mode?
0: So I think that the government context of how government can help fix this problem, nobody is better positioned, I think, than the United States government to fight disinformation. Um, The wealth of resources and analytic capabilities and intel that the government is able to get about these disinformation campaigns, there's just no matched capacity. I think we need to shift the way that we think about disinformation, though, because in my opinion, a lot of the way that this is approached, at least from a defensive perspective, is a lot of the same lessons that we learned from counterterrorism and social media. Where are the ISIS guys in chat rooms trying to recruit people to fly to Raqqa? You know, once you find them, you have to wait for them to commit a crime, and then you meet them at the airport, and you get a warrant, and all of these things. There's a threshold for when to act we don't have in the same way thresholds for when the government can act. So this is also a little bit, I think, of a legislative problem. In my view, if one person is exposed and potentially influenced by a foreign adversary who's conducting a disinformation campaign, That's too many people, and one of the best ways to blunt their ability to do this is to expose them. And so, frankly, I would like to see more and more nefarious actors being exposed because once those social media assets are exposed, you know, once these operations, which take years to lay the groundwork for, are exposed, they become useless. People will action on them. The social media platforms will remove content if it's found to be associated with a foreign government um, as part of a covert influence operation if it meets standards of what they call coordinated and inauthentic behavior. So I would like to see more on the exposing side. Um, I also think being proactive in terms of identifying vulnerable populations and communicating accurate information to them is extremely important. So going back to the where, when, and how to vote, we know that Black voters and Latino voters were disproportionately targeted by the Russian government specifically going into the 2016 election. Is there a specific outreach to make sure that voters know when, where, and how to vote? Is it effective? Is it, you know, something that could be improved upon? So I think that there's also that external communications component as well that will make it harder for individuals to be co-opted into an influence campaign. And then on the proactive side in terms of getting out in front of it, you know, if there are ways to stop disinformation campaigns through using um, different cyber tools to stop them before they come to U.S. persons, I think that that is something that also needs to be further explored. And that's the part that probably those conversations can't happen in the open. But I think that as much as we can talk about this in the open, we're all better off.
2: That kind of brings me to the next question, which really is, You know, we ask this a lot when people come on because we want to see things differently than what what we normally do within the military and government. So what what are we missing? What is the Army and the DoD not thinking about maybe or not paying attention enough uh, when it comes to disinformation?
0: I think we need to start looking at the long-term efforts of disinformation. So, for example, you know, I think especially when it comes to DOD, what happens when all of a sudden, you know, after being exposed to propaganda, children are exposed to propaganda and as they grow up, they all of a sudden feel warm and fuzzy about our foreign adversaries that are not our friends. I think that that is going to have real effects. Um, It used to be. You know, I I feel like we talk a lot about the threats that countries like Russia and China and Iran pose to the United States. Um, I think we need to take a look at also how do we make it more transparent when they're messaging to U.S. audiences? Um, so we have seen, and I know I um, shame Facebook a lot in this space, but credit where credit is due. We saw Facebook actually implement transparency features that could be made more prominent for sure. But transparency fe- features that RT, Sputnik, all these sources are in fact extensions of the Russian government. We need more of that. We need people to understand where the information is coming from and why somebody might be putting it out. And I think we need to consider it not just as it targets our troops, as it targets our elections, as it targets our critical infrastructure with 5G narratives. What happens when it starts targeting our children? What happens when it starts targeting our teachers? What happens when it starts targeting people who are influential within our communities, but it's not necessarily in the direct purview of anybody in the United States government to, quote unquote, protect?
2: Yeah, I think that really opens the aperture on how we have to think about that defense. Kind of changing lanes just a little bit, when we talk on this podcast, we look at the future a lot. And so, really, you're talking to future researchers right now. They're in high school, middle school. What kind of advice would you want to give them? Why would they want to work in this field to fight against disinformation?
0: The cool thing about working in the countering disinformation space is you get to see the impact of your work. Everything is open source, so it's not as though you have to get, especially in the private sector, it's not like you have to get a lot of sign-off and approval to be able to go out and find something. It's all out there. And so, if you're able and you're interested in taking, digging through the weeds, finding the needle in the haystack, being able to piece together the puzzle to figure out what's really happening. Once you have that information compiled, it's incredibly powerful. And being able to um, do things like expose a disinformation network so that it's no longer something that can be used. Once you're able to make elections a little bit more secure, and if you're able to do things like address disinformation around the coronavirus head on, it's incredibly rewarding to see the impact of your work on the day to day, and it's also a massive problem. And when you do these things, when you expose these networks, you're really helping your community because we're all consumers of information. And so being able to even just clean up a little tiny piece of the information space, you're having a huge impact.
1: So, Lisa, we're going to transition now to what we call our quickfire questions to round out the podcast here. So we'll hit you right off the bat here. What technology or trend keeps you up at night?
0: It's more the lack of cybersecurity and cybersecurity awareness and just the vast amount of data that's out there.
1: I understand that completely. Uh, So the second one, what is something interesting about you that most people might not know?
0: Oh, man, Um, the people might not know. Okay, I got one. I can't believe I'm about to say this on a podcast, but when I was in fourth grade, I was on the Disney Channel.
1: Well, you gotta you gotta give us more than that. Yeah, we got we have to know
0: now uh, what you were on. You know, and this comes up frankly every every so often. I would say like every five or so years at Thanksgiving. I'm still a little bit salty about it. But I introduced one of the tune breaks and then I got asked to go out, and I'm from Maine, so this is like a big deal. I then got asked to go out to LA and my mom put a kibosh on that. She was like, you are absolutely not going out there, not filming, zero percent chance. So I always say my acting career was come
2: on, mom. I
0: know. Ridiculous. So yeah, but early 90s or mid-90s, I was on the Disney Channel. Wow.
1: Well that that's one of the more interesting pieces of information we've gotten on this podcast. And I'm betting with the power of the internet, we could probably find a clip of that somewhere.
0: You have to know the right search terms, and that's under lock and key. Um, Unfortunately, I'm not authorized to disclose exactly what that is on my pay grade. You don't have to ask the class.
1: Okay. All right. So, the last one, the last question we ask here gives us a little insight into our guests. What's your favorite movie?
0: What is my favorite movie? Another good question. All right. One of my favorite movies is You've Got Mail, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan. It's just a classic. It's easy to throw on in the background. Chances are, if I've ever emailed you before, you have like a 10% chance that you've got mail is playing in the background as white noise as I'm sending emails. So I feel like I'm coming clean a lot about a lot of things on this podcast right now. But This is especially one of them.
1: Let's go. I'm glad the convergence can provide some catharsis to our guests.
0: Absolutely.
1: (laughs) So Before we let you go, um, do you have anything else you want to get out to folks? Where can they reach you? Where Where can they see your work? Any last words?
0: The last thing I would say is with all of these challenges, especially when it comes to technology and defense and really having to rethink the way that we do work and achieve our goals, which frankly are all mission critical, a lot of these problems seem overwhelming and whatever space you're in, it's just bite sized chunks out of the elephant. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Um especially to folks who are considering a career in the national security space or in public service, there is nothing more rewarding than getting to wake up every day and feel like you're making an impact. So would definitely encourage those to keep plugging along or take a look at careers within this space
1: and where can people follow you?
0: People can follow me on Twitter. I'm usually good for um a you know, random dog photo or something sassy to be sad and always tweeting about disinformation and misinformation as well.
1: Uh, so Lisa, thanks for coming on the show today. I want to thank you for talking about a, um, a topic that is frankly very relevant to us right now and providing a lot of great information on disinformation. So thanks
2: for coming on the show, Lisa.
0: Thank you all so much for having me and thanks for all that you're doing to elevate these conversations into the national consciousness.
2: And we implore our listeners to find the clip of Lisa on the Disney. Channel uh, so that we can share that.
0: Oh man, a bunch of awesome people are going to get on it. I don't stand a chance. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: okay, thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Lisa Kaplan of the aletheia Group. You can connect with Mad Scientists through Twitter at Army MadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at MadSciBlog.Tradoc.Army.Mil.